chocolate. 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 From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. Hey, chocolate lovers. Welcome back to Chocolate on the Road. I'm Max Gandy, the founder of DameCacao.com and this show's host. Today is the start of a mini-series of interviews between seasons one and two. Our guest for this episode is Emily Stone, the co-founder of both Maya Mountain Cacao and Uncommon Cacao. You might have heard of them. This is an interview we did for episode seven of the show, focused on cacao brands. So the majority of our conversation centers upon that topic. Here's Emily. Hi, my name is Emily Stone. I'm the founder and CEO of Uncommon Cacao, which is a specialty cacao company that connects cacao producers across eight countries and growing um, with about 150 chocolate makers globally. Do you have any chocolate or a cacao pet peeve? This has been my favorite question so far. (laughs) That's a tough question to start with. Um, I think, you know, my chocolate, actually, yes, I would probably say that my my chocolate pet peeves are companies that are making really industrial type chocolate. Um, and by industrial, I mean, not differentiated in value at all in terms of origin or cacao quality uh, or, you know, traceability to producers. Um, and they're making this sort of industrial chocolate, but are using packaging that may lead consumers to believe that it's special for some reason and that, you know, producers or the environment are benefiting in some way from me buying this chocolate bar. Um, one brand that in particular tends to be my pet peeve is Endangered Species Chocolate, uh, which is one of the most popular supermarket brands here in the U.S. It's also got one of the worst reputations. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any specific origin pet peeves? As someone who's worked with cacao really closely, is there anything that you get annoyed with that people don't seem to understand? I think there's so much that, you know, people are still learning about in cacao and are coming to understand. So it's really hard for me to characterize any of those pet peeves. I think, you know, as an industry, we do have to be somewhat patient and understanding that um, the movement that bean to bar chocolate has started is still really, really new. Um, And for many consumers, you know, there's just so much education that needs to be done. And so, you know, I think, you know, there are certainly ways that I think all of us in the industry could be um, as responsible as possible in talking about, you know, the integrity of our supply chains and the realities of, you know, what's working and, and just as much what's not working at origin um, but that in general, you know, it's, I'm not really in a pet peeve, uh, state yet. Cause I think there's just still so much education and there's so much that, you know, even, uh, those of us who have worked in the industry for, for quite some time now, you know, we, we still don't know, um, that we're all still learning. And so I try to steer away from thinking about things as pet peeves and rather thinking about them as opportunities for education and, you know, learning on, on all sides. Absolutely. I love that outlook. I imagine over a decade in the industry, that's, that's a necessary outlook. Yeah, we got to be patient. This is a long term thing. You know, when I'm, uh, I get a lot of questions about sort of, you know, when, when was, when is it all going to change? You know, when is the cacao supply chain going to be better? When is all of the cacao that's produced going to be excellent? And 
this is, you know, multiple decades of work ahead of us as an industry. Um, so I think it's good for all of us to be patient and kind with each other and, and with our market as we continue to, to learn and grow. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not a rom-com. You can't just snap your fingers. <laughs> Everything changes. Exactly. Um, who is the most inspirational person you've ever met? Um, some people that I've been inspired by recently, I would say, are um, Luisa Abram from Brazil. I met her uh, at the Northwest Chocolate Festival this past year for the first time. And I am just so inspired by the uh, courage and tenacity that she showed to really sort of dive into the unknown in Brazil and search out uh, these rare and totally unique, um, you know, varieties and, and um, trees of cacao deep in the Amazon. Um, just definitely a, a warrior in, in the cacao fight um, and trying to really uh, find something that's unique and, and special to, to her country and then turning it into chocolate. I just, I think what she's doing is really impressive. Especially at her age. She's like in her mid Yeah. Totally. She's a total badass. How would you define a cacao brand as the definition is being built? Yeah, this is so interesting because it's honestly not something I had really thought about until your piece came out. Um, but I do think that it's happening and it is you know, a real factor in, um, in craft chocolate right now. Um, so I would say a cacao brand uh, for me would be defined as a clear, consistent, well-known flavor profile, story, and sort of uh, personality for each uh, cacao origin. Um, and for cacao origins, you know, that can be defined as a specific fermentary. Uh, it can be defined as a specific region. And in some cases, it can be a sort of a specific country. And so, you know, when we think about cacao origins, that in itself is complicated enough to to really nail down and say, okay, what does that actually mean? And then thinking about a cacao brand, that's sort of the next level of, okay, now that we have our origin sort of defined clearly in terms of the, you know, geographic boundaries and, and the people who are producing the beans then how do we present that to the market and how do we build value for those producers um, and for the origin? One word you said that really stuck out to me. I love the characterization of it having a personality. It's just sort of branding 101. You know, the first step that you do in building a brand is really go deep sort of internally to what this thing would be if it was humanized, you know, and how it would connect with humans. And so, um, you know, we've done this for Uncommon Cacao, for example, in terms of our brand as a company is, you know, thinking about, you know, how does this brand act? If it was going to do something on the weekend, what would it do? You know, what colors does it like? All of these different things, which in the process of maybe doing it feel really silly um, you know, but then do add a lot more depth and meaning to to the brands um, of whatever it is that you're trying to build. And I think, you know, for us, there's with Cacao Origins, there's not really a need to do that exercise, but it does sort of naturally happen when you have chocolate makers and industry professionals coming to visit an origin and really getting to know 
the people, getting to know the place, getting to know the real feel of of that origin or of that country, you know, it does create sort of a personality. Um, you know, all of that, I think, helps attract chocolate makers to different origins in different ways, depending on what they're looking for and what story they want to tell in the brand of their chocolate to see, you know, if there's sort of an origin that helps to fit right in, in terms of, you know, not just the flavor profile and the people who are, who are producing the beans, but also the story uh, and the personality that that origin sort of conveys. As I understand it, each of the, the brands that you work with and that you've helped form in, in many cases has some kind of management structure. So if that management structure came to you or came to your team and said, hey, we want to make, start making some value-added products using our cacao to keep more of the money at origin, maybe cocoa butter or mulch or I don't know, what have you. Would you be open to that or do you really find that Uncommon has its own brand? Okay. No, absolutely. We are, um, we've actually, that's, um, that's happened now at a number of different origins where we work um, or where we source from. And we are wholeheartedly supportive of that. Um, You know, Oko Caribe has started to make their own chocolate this year and it's delicious and it is you know, helping them tell their story and build their brand and build value for that origin even more um, than they had in the past, just selling their beans. And, you know, at Cacao Verapaz in Guatemala, we've experimented with making some chocolate um, for sale into the local Guatemalan market. Um, There is, you know, I think it really depends on the individual interests of each company at, at origin or each cooperative and, you know, their local market and, and what they want to be doing with their cacao, but anytime that that interest is expressed, we are um, totally supportive because in the end, it only helps improve cacao quality. Um, it helps improve the sustainability and the stability of the origin. Um, and ideally, it helps to build you know, their brand as well and, and eventually helps us to you know, help market their cacao better. So many consumers think of, even if they know chocolate making pretty well, they still tend to think of it goes farmers to chocolate makers to consumer. They don't really think about how that cacao actually gets to the makers. How would you describe your role in in that? Yeah, so we are we are a connector. We are proudly middle woman in the supply chain, um, helping to really you know connect the dots and weave these people together, you know, really it's while we sell a product, um, cacao beans, I think in the end of the day, what we're really doing is, is connecting people and helping people work together. Um, you know, so we, we play a key role in the supply chain by being able to aggregate, uh, cacao from many different origins and provide a portfolio of options to chocolate makers that are looking for different flavor profiles, stories, different quantities, different sort of degrees of exclusivity. We are also able to support producers as an aggregator of their product. One thing that I think, you know, consumers and and even some chocolate makers don't quite um, understand is that, you know, for many of the producers who are supplying craft chocolate, um, craft chocolate is still such a small industry that um, you know, it's very rare that one or even five craft chocolate makers would be able to purchase the entire harvest of one origin. And so typically, you know, these origins are shipping 
five, 10, 15, 20 containers per year. And they need the stability of a buyer who can, you know, bring on the cacao from the harvest as it's, you know, coming out as it's ready to ship, even if some of those specific individual chocolate makers aren't ready for it yet. So we're able to provide that stability and dependability on the sales side um, to origins. Um, We're also able to provide that reliability of supply and access to chocolate makers. So we essentially de-risk the chocolate supply chain, the craft chocolate supply chain, um, by playing that key uh, middlewoman role, being able to help, you know, everyone grow their businesses. And in turn, you know, we really see it as our role is, is helping to really grow the industry, helping to bring in great cacao from, from great producers and helping chocolate makers have access to the beans at, you know, affordable prices that still allow farmers to live with dignity and build strong businesses that will help them produce cacao for many years into the future and, and continue supplying these chocolate makers. Would you say that Maya Mountain was the earliest cacao brand as you may define it now? Or would you say it's just the one that had the widest distribution earliest? So I would actually say, I remember when I started my mountain in 2010, um, and there's a whole story of, you know, when my mountain cacao was started, actually, it was called Moho Coco, which um, there's a pretty hilarious story about learning what that those words actually meant in like the local language in Creole in Belize, um, and me very quickly wanting to change that name. And so uh, Moho Coco only lasted about two months <laughs> uh, as a brand name. And then it became Moho River Cacao, which was the name of the river that was right next to our fermentary in Belize. Um, and then it wasn't until 2012, so two years later, that we changed the name to My Mountain Cacao. Um, and that was when we really started to sort of enter the market. You know, our first buyers from Belize back when we shipped our containers in 2011, our first buyer was Mast Brothers and Taza Chocolate. Um, and it wasn't really until 2012 that we started to to work with more chocolate makers and, and use the brand name, so to speak, Maya Mountain Cacao. Um, but actually, I consider that the first sort of established brand, quote unquote, in origins was Akasins, the Madagascar cacao. That has been in the market for much longer than Maya Mountain. I think what's different about Maya Mountain is that we were the first uh, smallholder cacao origin that was able to sort of compete and offer the flavor profile consistency and uh, and quality that chocolate makers uh, in this segment of the market expected. I always used to hear Atkinson's as just Sam Durano. Actually, I think for the until maybe like 2014 or 2015, that was really the only name that they gave that origin. So, and I always thought of it as a single origin. But mm-hmm. how do you think, you touched on this earlier, how do you think using or creating a a cacao brand is different from the more traditional single origin designation? Honestly, I don't think either term is really defined yet. So I can't, my comment here would just be totally subjective. And I'm still really coming to understand what a cacao brand means itself. Um, So I would say right now, you know, I'm sort of thinking about them as interchangeable in terms of an origin being the thing that would be branded and whether or not it has a brand is really just up to sort of the um, efforts of those running the origin and also the sort of market traction that that origin may or may not have. You said the 
the effort. So do you think there are any cons to creating a brand for, for your product? Um, I mean, I think in general, it's good practice. Um, and it's not necessarily an expensive or, you know, hard thing to do. Um, and I think there are some companies out there that just, you know, came into the market with really strong brands. Costa Esmeraldas, for example, I think, just really came into the market pretty recently over the last couple of years with a beautiful product and a beautiful, you know, strong brand, nice logo, nice bags. Ucayali River, same thing. Cacao Verapaz in Guatemala, you know, we did very similar things. And so at this point, I would say there are only benefits that we've seen of having this, you know, clearly defined, again, sort of, you know, flavor profile, consistency, and essentially, you know, personality of, of the beans and the origin. I think that it helps to connect people to to the realities of what's happening and um, it helps people to build loyalty to specific cacao origins that they love. But do you think that the cacao brand market is getting crowded, like fine chocolate is in certain places? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in um, I think it's pretty you know, commonly discussed now in craft chocolate and specialty cacao that we are in a pretty serious situation of oversupply. And I think one of the main reasons for that is, you know, dating back almost almost a decade ago, maybe like seven or eight years ago, there were those um, headlines that came out in newspapers around, you know, the million metric ton deficit that we're going to see by 2020 of cocoa. There's not going to be any more chocolate. These really sensationalist headlines that came out. And what that did was spur a lot of people at origin, investors, um, you know, entrepreneurs, uh, producers, cooperatives to get into cacao and, and specifically to get into producing specialty cacao um, because it looked like that was sort of the area of the market that was growing the fastest. And if you look at just the number of chocolate makers, the pure number of chocolate makers in the U.S. Um, over the last 10 years, I mean, there is that hockey stick sort of growth happening of just pure number of players who are buying cacao beans and turning them into chocolate. But then if you look at the volume that those chocolate makers are buying, it's not growing that fast. It's certainly not growing as fast as the cacao production available to that market is growing. And so, you know, it has become a much, uh, much more crowded market in the last several years as new origins have come into the market. Um, and also as production has grown from origins that have been around for longer. You know, for example, at My Mountain Cacao, we spent our first five years as a business completely sold out. You know, we just didn't have any cacao available for years. And so as people would contact us, we would have to um, turn them away. And it was part of why we ended up starting Cacao Verapaz in Guatemala and then growing to start Uncommon Cacao, where we could offer, you know, cacao from a number of different origins to these makers. Um, because we wanted to be able to to be there, you know, to, to provide that support and, and to be able to achieve our mission of creating more stability and success for smallholder producers in the supply chain. But as Maya Mountain grew, we also invested a lot in planting and helping producers improve productivity. Uh, we planted out our own demonstration farm, which is about 60 acres. Um, we planted over 125,000 trees uh, with uh, local smallholder farmers. And so our production has grown um, pretty dramatically uh, in Belize. And we've struggled to find a market for all of it because 
you know, there's just been this real sort of explosion of, of specialty cacao origins coming into the market. So, you know, I do think we're starting to see some of the larger, more established craft chocolate makers, you know, all of which are still pretty new companies, but are, are really getting traction and growing. You know, we're starting to see them build more factories, start to order more cacao and, and really grow. Um, and we're also seeing, you know, some companies move into the, the cannabis chocolate arena, which in the United States really has a lot of potential for growth um, in sort of a different market segment and, and a nice sort of add-on channel for, for chocolate makers who are buying great beans. So we're starting to see the market grow, but we definitely are in a situation of oversupply. And I expect it's going to be challenging for specialty cacao origins for the next several years, at least. What advice would you give someone looking to start a cacao brand? (laughs) Um, I would, you know, first start with the product. I would definitely not even take a single thought about making any kind of PR or marketing efforts or collateral until you really nail the quality and consistency of your cacao. Um, Because at the end of the day, you know, having branding material, so to speak, or, you know, marketing material can help get your foot in the door, but chocolate makers will never buy just based on a brand. They'll always look for the actual characteristics of the product itself. So the cacao has to be really good. The taste has to be consistent. It has to be, you know, we as Uncommon Cacao, for example, we typically won't bring on a new origin unless we've tried the beans over at least two different harvests to make sure that there's consistency and that the, you know, fermentation and drying operation is, is well equipped enough to, you know, work throughout the challenges of of different harvest and weather conditions to produce the same flavor profile. So that is definitely step number one. And then, you know, for us, when we were building Maya Mountain and when we were building Cacao Verapaz, we did a lot of work consulting with the producers themselves. Um, when we started Maya Mountain, you know, I spent four months sitting down um, with producers alongside uh, the farmer who helped to start Maya Mountain Cacao, a guy named Gabriel Pop. We sat down together and just listened to farmers, listened to their challenges, listened to their experience uh, working cacao over the years in Belize in different buyer contexts, different market environments. And we really tried to sort of integrate producer feedback, ideas, and and approaches into so many different parts of our company. And you can really see that in, in the way that we you know work with farmers today, um, the way that we prioritize our different activities at Origin. The brand should be the last thing. So, you know, the last thing you would want to do is, you know, start to define these personality aspects of like, okay, if my cacao was, you know, going shopping, what shoes would it buy? It's all of that stuff. That is the last thing that you should do. There's so much work that needs to go into, you know, building the operations at origin, building the quality um, process and fine tuning it, making sure it's consistent, um, figuring out your logistics strategy, figuring out your sales strategy, you know, whether you're going to work with um, intermediaries like Uncommon Cacao or Go Direct or try to go direct, um, you know, there's there's a lot that has to be figured out. So I would say the branding piece would definitely be at the, at the very end. And typically only after 
You even have some chocolate makers working with your cacao who can give you feedback and ideas on what they want to see in the brand and how it can best work for them as the company that will really ultimately be responsible for introducing your product, your cacao, uh, to consumers. Uh, I made a note that I forgot to ask you about earlier, but moho coco. Coco means vagina, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. And moho means float. It means what? Basically stinky. Oh, no! <laughs> Man, you went two months with that name and nobody told you? No, I found out like the first week, but then we I had to like go through the process of like changing the website, changing the emails, changing the like, you know, the like receipt books and all of that stuff. But we still had the sign. We had a sign that said Moho Cacao for many years. That's so rough. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. I found out at the hardware store when I was setting up our account. <laughs> Did he just start laughing? Oh yeah, the whole store. What did he say? <laughs> did he announce it? No, it's just, you know, it's it's Belize. It's a small little hardware store, and, like, all the guys who were in there just were rolling on the floor laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that. Right now, how many farmers and makers, you mentioned 150 makers with Uncommon, but specifically, how many farmers and makers with Maya um, Mountain Cacao, and then also with Uncommon Cacao as a whole, are you working with? That's a Good question. Let me see. I can definitely respond on the farmer question. So um, right now, actually, Maya Mountain Cacao just did their organic inspections, which is basically how we set our farmer network for buying for each harvest um, because we're 100% organic certified at Maya Mountain. And so each year, the number of farmers in our network determines our um, basically who we'll be buying from. Um, and this year, I believe it's 409. Um, it was literally just done right before the holidays. I know it's just over 400. Um, so that's at Maya Mountain in terms of producers. And then in terms of buyers, um, this changes a lot. We have new people coming to use Maya Mountain pretty frequently. Um, so I can follow up with you with that question if that would be helpful. Or I can take a second to try and look it up. My guess is it's around like somewhere between 35 and 45. Yeah. 100, about 150 makers in total at Uncommon, but do you know the number of farmers you're working with? Yeah, um, the total number of farmers we're working with as of Q4, as, the, as of the end of last year, is 4,713. What's the highest price that you buy at and the lowest price that you buy at in terms of like dried cacao? In terms of dried cacao? Um, like buying from origin? Yeah. Or what's what's the difference between, you don't have to say the exact numbers, but like what's the difference between the highest amount and the lowest amount? Because all of these countries are, are developing countries, but I'm not sure people realize like the big, huge difference you can have between average income and then when you're actually talking about cacao itself, how small of a difference. Yeah. So why don't I... um use Farmgate price first um, because I think that is that's what farmers actually receive and I think that's just a it's a really important data point it's something that we are always trying to to talk about and make sure that people are asking questions about and understand because the Farmgate price is very different than the FOB or the export price 
The farm gate price is typically in craft chocolate supply chains paid for wet cacao because most cacao is centrally fermented that will be sold into the craft chocolate market. And so that farm gate price is, is typically, you know, paid to the farmer for wet cacao. And then the export or FOB price is what would be paid to the fermenter or exporter when they sell the cacao, when they ship it internationally. So that's basically the price of the cacao that they paid to the farmers, plus all of the cost of fermentation, drying, overhead, et cetera, to get to their export price. We are right now in the process of collecting data for our 2018 transparency report, and I don't, we don't have it yet, um, but I can tell you our 2017 numbers, because we do this sort of crunching of numbers annually. Um, so in 2017, the highest price we paid at the farm gate was the equivalent of $3.97 per kilo. Um, and that is equivalent as if it were a kilo of dried cacao. So $3.97, $3,970 per ton, you could say uh, for, uh, but it was, it was bought in the form of wet cacao. Um, so that meant that we paid in Belize, it was $1.25 Belize per pound or about 60, uh, 63 cents US uh, per pound for wet cacao. Uh, and the lowest price that was paid in our supply chain at the farm gate in 2017 was at Pisa in Haiti, um, and that was about $1.65. And I think that's a really interesting comparison um, because at Pisa in Haiti, you know, the impact that that organization has had on the cacao industry cannot be overstated. It has raised the price. So before Pisa started to buy wet cacao, um, the uh, price was uh, one quarter of what PISA is paying now. So you can imagine if, you know, farmers in Belize are making nearly $4 per kilo dry, um, farmers in Haiti would have been making about 45 cents dry um, for selling wet cacao. And so PISA was able to come into the market and really sort of nail down the fermentation and drying um, central processing of cacao and be able to connect um, farmers in Haiti to global markets, they were able to increase that price by 300%. Um, so that was huge. However, taken out of context, you know, next to Belize, it looks like a lower price. But in the meantime, you know, the economies in, in these two countries and in all the countries where we work with, as you mentioned, are very different from each other. The living income sort of required to meet basic requirements is really different. The a thriving income, quote unquote, which is above living income, which allows producers to save to you know build their lives through cacao sales. Um, that is is different in each country depending on the cost of living. Um, Belize is an incredibly expensive uh, country to live in. It's a small economy. It is um, English speaking. It's right on the Caribbean. It's surrounded by uh, Mexico, Guatemala. Uh, Honduras, El Salvador are right there as well. And uh, it's incredibly expensive. Um, the you know labor laws and, and minimum wage is much higher than in, in neighboring countries. So uh, it's a struggle we have a lot in Belize um, is, you know, figuring out the right price point um, to pay where we can, you know, make sure producers are, you know, not just surviving, but thriving. Um, and yet we can also keep the cacao competitively priced uh, for, for global markets is the background that people rarely get on the ingredients that go into their food. 
one final question, and you've touched on this a bit in, in most of your previous answers, but what have been the growing pains of building a business in cacao and specifically of building a business in a developing country? You know, building a business is challenging anywhere, um, no matter who you are, where you are, what you're trying to do. You know, building something from scratch, you know, as you said, that sort of has no blueprint is just always really hard. Um, and I think one of the hardest things about building a business in specialty cacao is that, you know, this industry is so young. Um, this market is really new and it's very challenging to plan. It's really hard to predict the future. Um, there are many factors that could influence how we grow and at what pace, um, depending on, you know, everything from how many chocolate makers come into the market, how many of those chocolate makers are able to raise capital uh, and scale, um, how many of those chocolate makers choose to use our origins, how many different origins do they choose, and then, you know, factors at origin around, you know, production, productivity, agriculture itself is so, you know, oftentimes unpredictable and very hard or impossible to control um, when you're talking about, you know, weather, uh, natural events, um, you know, all of these different factors can can really influence the behavior of a company from one year to another. And when I have my sort of quarterly financial reviews, it's all of these things come up, you know, in the narrative around how we're performing. So I think there are very unique challenges to cacao that, you know, relate to those factors that that I've shared. But in addition to that, you know, we are, we are an international business. Um, our team speaks uh, at least three different languages, four actually. So we have, you know, within our team, people who speak during the workday, uh, English, Spanish, Kekshimaya, and Mopan Maya. Um, we're doing business in French. Uh, we have uh, investors and supporters, advisors uh, all over the world. And so you know, building a business that seeks to go beyond specific local or national borders and, and really connect people and build something that's strong and stable, um, you know, for, for all of our stakeholders, I think is, is, a, is a challenge that I love. Um, it's, I find it really fun, um, but it is, it is not easy. Did anyone ever tell you it would be easy? Is anyone like, you should move to Belize and start a business? No. Seems chill. I mean, it is funny. A lot of my like my friends and family, a, a lot of them. Some people now get it, you know. Especially people who have come to visit, they're like, "Oh, okay, we get it." Um, but most people, they're like, "Oh, my friend Emily, she has a fair trade chocolate company," and I'm just like, "Yep, that's it." Because <laughs> just explaining the intricacies of like, no, we actually sell cacao, and they're like, "Oh, no, she has a fair trade cacao farm," and I'm like, "No, not that either." <laughs> Um, you know, so <laughs> it is, you know, it's, um, it is, I think it's just as hard in, in some cases to explain what it is that I'm doing, that it is to do what I'm doing. Yeah. It's, it's hard to explain something that doesn't really have any previous examples. Yeah. You know, I try to relate it to coffee, mm -hmm. um, cause I think a lot of people sort of understand specialty coffee a little bit more. And so that has been, that's been helpful. And then I think just as more people, you know, get out there and see craft chocolate and see 
you know, um, the story of Maya Mountain on the back of a bar or the story of La Chua, Guatemala on a bar. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's, you know, I know that that cacao came from, from my friend's company. Then it's, people start to understand it um, a little bit more and they ask better questions and I'm able to have more sort of rich conversations with people. But um, again, it's this, it's being patient and kind and uh, with myself as well as with others and just making sure that at the end of the day, it's clear, you know, what our business is doing and where we're going and, um, you know, what we hope we're able to achieve and, um, and create really alongside all of the um, craft chocolate makers and producers who are really doing, you know, groundbreaking work, um, producing high quality cacao and chocolate. Absolutely. Educating the populace is sort of a one-on-one kind of job. Yeah. Although I have said multiple times, I think, you know, I see a huge gap in our industry in that we don't have any real sort of broad-based PR or marketing efforts that help people understand what craft chocolate is or bean-to-bar chocolate outside of specific brands. And all of the companies in, in craft chocolate at this point are still, you know, really small uh, compared to, to bigger food and beverage brands. And so for us to be able to compete against supermarket, you know, industrial chocolate, and grow consumer loyalty. Um, I really think we need to be doing a better job of getting out there as an industry and telling our story, not just as a specific brand, but as a movement. You know, positioning our movement, positioning our our businesses as a sort of single unit, as a as a representation of what's possible in chocolate. You know, all the good news in chocolate. Um, you know, getting getting ourselves into the public uh, line of sight a little bit more, whether that's through TV work or through, you know, broader local regional uh, marketing. I just think there's, there's a lot that could be done to help people who want to love craft chocolate who are, you know, love it already, but they don't even know that it's out there. Um, And they're looking for it, but they don't know where to find it. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity in in telling our story more broadly, as we start to see more uh, industrial chocolate manufacturers, you know, putting misleading information on their packaging, we will need to to respond and it will be better if we are able to be creative about how we do that rather than reactive to whatever is put out there by um, big industry. Is there anything else based on the topic of today's show that you'd like to share that you feel like you haven't had a chance to, to put out there yet? I'm not sure if this would be relevant, so feel free to like cut this out, but I would say one of the most sort of helpful pieces of brand building that we've done now for Uncommon Cacao, um, which I should also note that Uncommon Cacao is the parent company of My Mountain Cacao and Cacao Verapaz. So we're technically like a consolidated company. They're subsidiaries of Uncommon. So we've done a, we did a really interesting exercise a couple months ago to determine our company values. And we settled on five, which are courage, interdependence, grit, passion, and accountability. And I think just doing that exercise of really identifying our five values and then thinking about how we live them, you know, day in and day out for all of us, whether you're buying cacao at the farm gate from producers or you're, you know, raking dried cacao or you're organizing container shipments or you're um, on the phone with chocolate makers every day, you know, talking about cacao and, and helping them find great beans. 
Um, you know, how does the value of courage, how does the value of interdependence, how does grit, you know, how do all of these, these values show up? Um, and that has been the single most important thing in sort of unifying and, and clarifying our brand message. A huge thank you to Emily for chatting with me at the beginning of the year. To learn more about her and Uncommon Cacao, check out the link to the show notes in the description. We'll be back next week with another interview, this time from Japan. Mm-hmm.